Boom. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow asset capitalists, um, when I was at uh, when I was a, a young person, much younger than today, so I was like the Beatles, um, I remember on hot, sun, sunny summer days in June, um, the, and I would have been, I don't know, eight years old, and the teachers would take class outside and you would sit like in the grass and it'd be kind of nice. And um, I'm invoking that today. Um, I'm, I'm in the garden. I've got a tree behind me. Um, thank you. Um, Thank you, Patreons. Thank you for the support. Uh, this is the the, the half-hour teaser. Um, we're going to get try and jump right in. I mean, um, there's so little that I could say <laughs> owing to how quickly we organize this. But I, I'm really, I think this is going to be dope. I, you know, Bob was amazing last week. I, I love the chemistry of Bob. But I, I, I found... I mean, I still can't get over the, the I mean, Scandia, I mean, you know, um, the Scandinavian furniture. I mean, I mean, I'm now thinking of Amaranth, which was that natural gas blow head fund. None of it seems, none of it seems kind. I've got, and I'm thinking Scandia, the bank. I've just got, I've got too much nonsense in my head. So I'm, I'm going to say nothing. You introduce yourself. Uh, happy to. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, my name is Skanda Amranath. Uh, I'm not Scandinavian. Um, I don't run uh, uh, any kind of a bank or furniture. Um, instead, I run a policy think tank. Uh, it's focused on macroeconomic policy issues in the United States um, and trying to ideally support strong labor markets, preserve expansions, um, all the stuff that uh, obviously macro investors may be um, trying to think about how things deviate from that path. Uh, before that, I worked at a macro hedge fund for a few years um, as a strategist and an economist. And before that, I worked at the New York Fed. So I've had a bit of policy markets, um, some kind of think tank work, and somewhere in the middle of that, I got a law degree as well. So I don't know how that happened. But um, yeah, I'm looking forward to the discussion today. I know you're a legend. <laughs> well, yeah, my own lunchtime. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm meant to be Benjamin Button, I meant to be getting younger. I mean, you either started your career when you were like in kindergarten at three years old. I mean, maybe you, maybe that makes sense. You were in kindergarten, you were working at the, the New York Fed. I mean, I get <laughs> that, that, maybe that's probably a good way to spin up the myth around myself. I should say I was a child prodigy at the New York Fed, started their kindergarten hedge fund in teenage years, and now I'm and only now I'm starting to get going. <laughs> So you, so yeah, so you, you get to pimp the. Forgive me, I'm, I'm being facetious. I don't mean to be, but um, but you get to pimp the the the, the descent from heaven. You know, everyone that works for the Fed gets a bit of a finance gig. Uh, what did you do there? Tell me. And when? So that was the New York Fed from 2013 to 15. Um, I worked in the research group. These are most of the people who are aspiring to become PhDs. I decided not to take that path ultimately, but um, I was in the asset pricing. I did a lot of academic research on macro and finance, some policy work on the side. Um, the Fed is a pretty academic institution. Um, and so these are people who, instead of professors always love research and don't like teaching, swap out the teaching, put in the policy work that kind of reflects how um, economists at the Fed sort of structure their work. So I did a lot of academic work and I realized I don't want to do the academic stuff. I would ta I would trade some of the academic breadth for the, the so academic depth for the breadth you get in terms of doing real markets work. Um, you get to really 
float around to the really important policy issues, important economic issues of the day. Um, that's just more my sweet speed than um, called academia and academic macro. Yeah, it, remind, it reminds me of working in Edinburgh where everyone, there were lots of old young men, you know, like they were kind of, I, I swear, this is so true. I mean, I even fell, for, I mean, I had to, like, you know, I was going nowhere, I had to start, like, copying them. Um, you know, like, they would buy three-piece, three, what you call it, a three-piece suit where you have the waistcoat. I mean, we all looked as if we were in that Sean Connery movie about um, when he takes down Al Capone, the Untouchables, Untouchables, you know, and and, remember, and it was wool, and it was made for, like, advocates who would uh, present in court with judges. And occasionally I'd have to go to London, and the, the material was so thick that the journey on the, the metro, I mean, I, I passed out one time with, with, with heat, but... Anyway, less on me, more on you. Can you tell me from that vantage point, that very learned position within the heart of the Federal Reserve System? I mean, if we went back 100 years ago, of course, New York, the New York Fed was the pinnacle of the institution running it. Um, internally, if they were to, to look back over the last 25 years, what do you think they regard as their finest moment in terms of an intervention? I think they look back with a lot of centrality around what happened in the fall of 2008 in response to Lehman collapsing, standing up all the facilities, getting all this, uh, coordinating so much uh, on the fly, despite it all obviously being a period of crisis and re deep recession and political turmoil. All of those things are true. And yet I think if um, New York Fed Institution, I think all of them, took a lot of internal pride in the sense that they moved as fast as they did to an unprecedented. It's probably maybe self-serving from one vantage point, but I actually think it's also, I think the people there were very um, thought of themselves as very public minded too, at least in terms of that's maybe not, that's a more um, upbeat view of how they sort of saw themselves. And from 2008 to even while I was there, like New York fed among the regional fed banks and even, in terms of the knowledge of finance and markets, there was something pretty special about the institution um, relative to the rest of the Fed. That's been changing over the years in terms of culture, uh, with the Fed in D.C. trying to also beef up their expertise and trying to be more at the center of some of those discussions. But look, there were certain, <laughs> I would get, when I was an intern in 2012, they would uh, say, uh, you're having lunch at the table where Paulson and Geithner and all these people brought in the CEOs and t talked to them about all these different things related to Barclays. Could they could take Lima and all this kind of stuff. So there's a lot of history kind of embedded. It's a cool institution on that level that um, I was, I, I, I had the bug for macro and markets probably. Um, I started following around 2007 as a high school student, <laughs> giving away my age, age a bit, but uh that was a period when like so many things are going on. It's just an education of itself to fall, just to read the news and follow what's happening and to see all that stuff. Then as someone who was working at the New York fed, that this is where it all, where history really happened. Um, yeah. There's something pretty awesome about that. Who, who was chairman of the New York fed in, in 07, 08? Was it Dudley? D Dudley came later. Geithner was the main um, New York fed president before he went to become Obama's treasury secretary. Um, and so there was some, there was a bit of a handoff to get to from Geithner to Dudley, but Geithner was the New York Fed president um, during the Bush administration, uh, basically. So that was, especially during that sort of 2007-8, when things are just getting worse and worse and worse, I'm sure firmly etched into your um, 
memories. <laughs> so, so there wasn't a time when you were having a sandwich and they said to you, gee, you know, kid, you're sitting at that table. We fundamentally misunderstood the nature of risk markets. You know, we presented to the, the main board of the, the Federal Reserve and we said commercial paper, absolutely no problem. Uh, we, we've spoken to bank counterparties. No one's got an issue. Housing market seems to become our biggest fear in August of 2008 is not the absolutely grotesque recession that is bearing down upon us, but it's inflation. Did they have that conversation? Did you, did you, did they hide that table? I mean, is that, is that the shame table? Or, yeah, know? yeah, I, 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 it's, it's now come as such a big surprise that those types of discussions don't necessarily happen. I think there are certainly those who said, uh, that they were flagged certain warning signs. I think there is, um, I think to your point, there's a lot of lessons of that period that just go forgotten because it doesn't look good on a lot of um, leaders' resumes, especially when you think about, um, if you read Geithner or Bernanke's memoirs, there's a certain like phase of 2008 where it's a little fuzzy what they were actually saying to, about what monetary policy should be in, let's say, the summer of 2008. Um, so they said, oh, I was just focusing on Lehman and trying to sort out, sort out Lehman. I wasn't doing anything with monetary policy. I was one of the good guys. Um, there's a little bit of that revisionism that obviously gets colored into different people's takes. But also, I think there's a definite sense of, um, look, I mean, I think it, it is they're kind of too, always good to have, be able to grok two ideas at once. One is that, yeah, there's definitely like a 2007, eight, a lot of blind spots. I do think also like for the sake of um, the institution's ability to move quickly in the, in terms of standing up things that didn't exist before and just say, we're going to do the CPFF on the fly. We're going to do a lot of these things and everyone else while Congress is bickering about what to do with TARP and all this other stuff. Um, this was an institution that had some ability to move on its own. Um, that part is a little more, more redeeming. And I obviously it's, it's a good thing to have institutions that are actually able to move with some speed given that government generally is pretty rigid I, I but i guess it's just i mean we'll, we'll move on but you know the the central you would hope the central importance of the new york fed would be their um their relationship with major financial global financial risk takers um and they just seem to be um, you know so far removed from the notion of risk but, I, 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 fear, I, fear, I fear it's actually getting a little bit worse now in terms of I think the New York Fed is getting less market-centric, um, and that would be a real shame because I think that that's kind of a, a special and important function to think about monetary policy. All of its traction, we can talk about inflation and labor markets all we want, but it runs through financial markets. And all of those, if you want the Fed to stop inflation, it runs through financial markets. If you want the Fed to not to avoid recession or whatever it is, then that also runs through financial markets. So understanding mm -hmm. how those work. I think that expertise, unfortunately, has been underinvested in. There also, it, it seems striking. I had, had the good. Did I have the good fortune? Um, I, I, I caught a few YouTube videos with uh, one of the joint CIOs at Bridgewater, uh, the lady um, with the double barrel name, um, and it's striking the reverence actually that the Federal Reserve is held in by the largest financial institutions. I mean, the, the big financial groups really believe the Fed gets it. Uh, and I, I, I see no evidence that the Fed gets it at all. But, um, but I have to confess that there were things that this time around, I really did fail to grasp 
I'm, I'm kind of going to, in the teaser section, I'm going to give my fit a complete, but you know, I'm like, kick out my heels. Um, because I really did miss the, you know, 2020, 2021, the private sector of the United, the United States economy, uh, fixed. I mean, they, 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 re- they, they all fixed long. They, they, you know, rates were like 2% and you could fix it. Like not for two years, like in the UK, Australia, or Canada, but for damn 30 years, you know. And, you know, that, I mean, there's a lot of preposterous elements of, of uh, trying to understand money supply, but there was an element where money supply went shooting up because people like, I don't know, Eli Lilly, Merck, uh, Apple, uh, who have revolving like short-term credit and, you know, the bank's like, yeah, like you're, you're good for, I don't know, $800 billion. And they just went, well, okay, tap and 800 billion goes into their account and, and effectively at nothing. And then over the next few years, you put it on higher and higher rates. So I did, I definitely got um, a bit, I, I hadn't appreciated just how widespread that had been. And so there you are, the Fed, and you're like, I'm going, oh shit, we got inflation. Let's go to 1% interest rates. Nothing. Oh, two, three, four. Like you kept pressing the dial. Nothing happens because like everyone's like, oh, you know, I fixed my mortgage for like two and a half percent. Like go away. Um, I had missed that. Um, so this does feel like a a remarkable attempt to slow down an economy where the private sector may immunize itself from from short term yeah. rates. Um, and of course, the the big imponderable is: did that therefore make the recession impossible, or did it just make it? Did it suspend or push it out into a point where you know, like you just had to keep punching and punching till you broke the surface until actually you, you became relevant? Um, I mean, my my misgivings are, are more there but in terms of eking that out from you um so the tell me about the 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 policy group first of all is it, that clearly has a patron do we talk about who the patron is behind that do we talk about the purpose of the group your role within it we have we have yeah. we're, so it's called employ america um we have we were um i think i'll i, I don't want to out any particular, we have multiple funders and we're, we're seeking multiple funders over time anyway. So it's, it's a pretty diverse, um, it's, it's getting more distributed. Um, yeah, but it, it, it's, it's meant to serve a, the function of what macroeconomic policy tends to be, unfortunately, under, uh, underrated, underappreciated. It, we're talking about in recessions and financial crises, losses of millions of jobs. We're talking about like big proportions of, of human impact. If you think about inflation and in terms of how to deal with it, even there, like cost of living crises are very real for a lot of people. Right. So that, especially if you think about those who can't afford food and energy, that's important to think about. Like how, how are we going to attack that problem in affirmative ways? These, these are of epic proportions and yet they tend to be treated as too complex. Not everyone wants to focus on a lot of other policies that nibble at the margins, but it's like, this is, <laughs> This is it. This is the thing that really matters. The mo- it's not to say not to say at the expense of other stuff, but it is like macro really should be put on at least the equal pedestal to a lot of the other policies and social issues that tend to be predominant in political discourse, policy discourse, economic discourse. 
Um, it's true. Macro, <laughs> I'd say a lot of academic frameworks have made a total mess of macro um, in terms of like how to understand it intuitively, causally. Um, but it's still, that doesn't mean the subject is irrelevant. The subject is, <laughs> if anything, ever more relevant to understanding all of the impacts on society at large. And again, all these society societal impacts inter- interact with what we see in terms of financial markets, how the Fed works, how fiscal policy works. I think that's another part of what you're talking about. Um, the private sector got a nice boost there too, in terms of how fiscal policy effectively supports households and businesses. Yeah. Um, I, I love the, you know, I, I, I love the cause. Um, the, um, I guess what I'd like to do is try and eke out the, the prejudice, um, the prejudice being the understanding of, of how it works. Because, you know, I wanted you on because I think it's, like you said, it's very central to the conversation um, in, in so many different ways. I mean, I was just mentioning the, the Fed hiking cycle and the, uh, the profound importance at the center of, of, of all the models is the Phillips curve. You know, they're looking at employment, you know, the inflation, the concern is higher wages. Okay. Um, and and my concern about this hiking cycle is how it coincides and seems to reinforce uh, the coercive nature of international global trade, which I, I think the fundamental changes in global trade over the last 30, 40 years um, I don't think it's contentious to say, but they really define the success of central bank uh, inflation policy targeting. It was nothing to do with, I don't think it, I had very little to do with their interventions and, and everything to do with globalization. Um, but over the last 30 years, the nature of the funding of the industrialization of the Chinese economy, uh, the switching the funding funding to being predominantly internal where you require a wealth transfer from one economic agent to another internal agent um, and so within China it's come from the house it always comes from the household sector uh, and it comes and it subsidizes infrastructure projects um, and it creates an economic um, moat around these large manufacturing conurbations and it, and it gives them, you know, a, a profound um, energy and power within global markets such that, and it really shocked me when I looked into it, you know, the, the trade surplus in manufacturing as a percentage of GDP, you know, in China just now it's, it's rising from a low of about 16% of GDP having been as high as almost 20% around the year 2008. And, and to put that into context, when the US was truly almighty at the, the absolute apex of its industrialization, and when you'd had the devastation of the rest of the world beer, the, the two global wars. So if you look at that surplus as a percentage of GDP in the 1920s or in the 1940s, uh, late 1940s, it was 6% of GDP. So it was of a different order. But anyway... Um, the model today is internal funding, um, 
the creation of profound surpluses in capacity. You know, they can produce goods way beyond the means of the domestic Chinese population to consume them. Uh, and the quid pro quo is that is a is an is exogenous factor that is. Um, if you will, that the U.S. accepts, it changes the the savings and the income distribution. Um, but it makes it profoundly difficult to create jobs in America, and it makes it profoundly difficult for uh, jobs, the the remuneration of jobs in America, to rise when there is a steadfast determination that Chinese labor. Um, any remuneration will never be allowed or never permitted to bridge the gap between um, its productivity achievements and, and the paycheck, if you will. So, so we have a, a Fed targeting the labor market. Uh, we have the labor market in America very much having been um, at the wrong receiving end, getting a lot of punishment from international trade. Those two factors are colliding. Fed policy is that people should be paid less or have fewer jobs. Um, it doesn't fill me with joy. Um, and again, it comes back to policy advisors. You know, I was asking about the preeminence of the Federal Reserve, but, you know, advisors to senior politicians. I, I don't hear good policy advice. So what is the policy advice that, that you're trying to spread from your foundation? Right. So I think part of the attack from the Fed's perspective, right, in terms of saying, we think inflation, they've kind of softened this language now, but they have still keep saying the labor market is so tight, it's so tight, it's it's probably the cause of recession, maybe it's, of inflation, it could be 80%, 50%, but they kind of make it seem as if that's the main thing. And it's like, without labor market slackening up, there's going to be more inflation, so that's like the key ingredient. Um and I think this view is like misses a lot in terms of what's driving inflation. And it, especially if you think about the material world and what drives that, if we think about energy, if you think about commodities, if you think about the number of material inputs relevant for durable goods, you can hire all the workers, but if you don't have the, just a paradigmatic example, think about chip, uh, chips and automobiles. You can have the workforce on site, but if you don't have the chips, it doesn't, you can't build, uh, assemble cars. Um, that, that's not a bad mini model of how a lot of things on the good side of the economy work. And that oftentimes involves a lot of supply chains that are overseas in China. Um, that part of the equation gets lost. And so it's okay. I have this Phillips curve model that says inflation is explainable by the labor market. Okay. There's a version of that, that may be a little more permissible, but the version that tends to be used says the level of the unemployment rate, we have to keep moving this around to, to actually affect inflation. This is a pretty bad model, right? This is a pretty bad, not robust model. If you tried to run forecasts based on it without cheating, you'd get a rubbish model, rubbish forecasts. But it is almost, it's so tempting to keep saying, well, these two things are macroeconomic variables that have got to be related in some way. How can I possibly see inflation come down without us breaking the labor market first? Um, so making both the intellect... <laughs> Why, why does it prevail? The, the Phillips curve, in particular, the dominance of the Phillips curve. I mean, you know, the scatter points, the correlations, uh, previous interventions just don't give it. You know, it's been timed out. Especially if you think about it in the context of oh, there must be some I don't remember the NIRU or the natural rate of unemployment. 
It's like, oops, it's actually somewhere else. We learned this after the fact. Oh, no, the, the natural rate of unemployment, I thought it was 4%. It's actually 5 Oh, now it's 3 Now it's 4 It's like, if it's moving around this much and you can't show me, tell me how this works and like a, see it with my own eyes, um, we should be skeptical. Uh, but even more so, what I think that like economists tend to be gravitate towards, especially macroeconomists, because it's simple. Because supply, when you think beyond labor, when you think about plant and equipment and IP, that's supply too. But that's you have to get into the weeds. You can't just stay up and see the unemployment rate comes out every month. It's a nice time series. It goes back from to 1945, basically. It, you can run a regression versus inflation. You can torture it, overfit it, all of that stuff. A lot of people can do that, right? Saying inflation is driven by these factors related to energy, related to food, automobiles, that's like heterogeneous. That's messy. And, and obviously, you can abuse that type of thinking too. But it's also, we think about what a business has to actually supply. <laughs> that's going to be a lot more than just labor. You've got to do something with the labor. You have to mix the labor with other inputs. Um, and a lot of the, the, those inputs don't aren't made in the United States, right? Um, but that is a that's a huge bias in macroeconomics to say every single every, everything's a nail to a hammer. I need to explain inflation, labor labor market's the hammer. I just need to use labor market to say everything is caused by it. Sure. Oh, we, we, labor costs are most of your costs. Yeah, but labor costs are, tend to be a lot stickier than the price of jet fuel for an airline. An airline has to decide how to set airfares. <laughs> empirically, you can look at the earnings calls too. You can look at all that stuff. They'll tell you, we've got a certain budgeted margin for jet fuel. If jet fuel prices spike, we're going to have to adjust prices. Delta bought a refinery for this reason. <laughs> but that's like not part of the macroeconomist like general sense of thinking about this. It's like, oh, that's like, that's a little bit. But it's like, no, that's what matters at the margin. Because jet fuel prices changed like that. <laughs> Labor costs for flight attendants and pilots. Okay, look, they are, they are there. They obviously affect the assessments no doubt, but they tend to attract all the attention because it's like, I'm a macroeconomist. I just look at the labor market. I don't need to look at all this other funny business with energy and food and all these other, other areas that are very, uh, yeah, it's, just a, it's, a, it's a more of a mess for them to deal with. And so it, but that's the real world. The real, is me- real world is messy and you need to develop tools to actually understand that. So the foundation is looking, I mean, if you could improve, change the world, the, the kind of number one, number two things you'd be seeking to do would be what? I would say, first thing, don't try to use macro tools to break the labor market as like an explicit goal, which is it's something that I'd say the Fed's rhetoric and policies, maybe less so now, but especially from like called September to March and May, while they were hiking through a lot of regional bank uncertainty, all were pretty consistent with, with we got to aim for recession. We've got to break the labor market somehow. Labor markets are pretty important for people's livelihoods and a lot of things. If you want to tackle inflation, you are going to have to start thinking a lot more about root causes. You have to think about what was driving and develop policy tools around that. The, the really nefarious linkage is to say the Fed controls this thing that definitely controls inflation, which is like there's a lot of things that you're intermediating through there. It's not to say the Fed has no effect on inflation. But it is like very attenuated. You got to go through financial markets, then you got to go through labor markets, and then you got to get to inflation. <laughs> so, and oh, look, there may be some other pa- factors that you could possibly push at the margins, maybe wealth effects. But like, look, a lot of people are poorer in terms of their household wealth after 2022. It didn't drastically change consumption patterns. Um, so, like, there's some effect. 
maybe in other countries that have variable rate mortgages like Canada and UK, right? Yeah, homeowners consumption is taking a direct hit. In the United States, it's fixed rate. Uh, that's that's a very different um, setup where you're not even cramping uh, homeowners consumption that way. Homeowners have it really good in terms of fixed rate mortgages. So what are you really leaning on when you go through the Fed channel? You're kind of hoping maybe for slower job growth, slower wage growth. And within some bounds, that's probably fair. But if you really want to get a lot of the, the, the more difficult inflation challenges, we're probably going to need a set of policy tools that are at least trying to attack things in a more direct manner, whether that's consumption on the demand side or on the, call it supply side, if there are things that you can do to build in more resilience around the stuff that really gets inelastic, energy, food, commodities, that's really the stuff that is most irritating, affects the poor the most. Thinking about that intelligently is hard, but it is also probably the, that's the better way to think about this. We have to kind of decouple some of the obsession with saying what Milton Friedman kind of indoctrinated a certain set of generation of people into thinking the Fed controls the money supply, money, money supply affects inflation. It's like the Fed doesn't have, the Fed has a lot of power. The power is not control. The Fed doesn't have this tight, nice lever that easily affects inflation. It is through a huge prism of um, factors that get, it just gets refracted over and over again. And so that might be, that's certainly a view of mine that's out of consensus, but I do think it's part of the dilemma right now of like, oh, the Fed raised rates. And some people tell you the Fed needs to raise rates more because you haven't seen inflation really come down enough. And other people say, set of people say, ah, I see inflation coming down. It must be because of the Fed. And it's like, ah, there's a lot of things in between that, I don't know, Larry Summers was saying we got to have 7 to 9% unemployment. I don't know. So there's like clearly something missing from those people who say um, the Fed's hikes are already having sort of the impact, even though they said it was going to happen through a broken labor market. Yeah, I mean, there, there's some symmetry in. I, I can't believe you you mentioned the the, the summer's name on my damn show. Um, Seven to nine percent rates, and then you've got the pine. Have you heard of the pine cone man? No. Um, there's there's a very prominent, um, very successful hedge fund manager in terms of gathering assets under management. Tends to have a few wobbles. Uh, but you know, more often than not, a bull market seems to kind of carry them, carry them to uh, uh, on the shoulders of of men and ladies. Uh, Bill Ackman, um, and for some reason, only known to himself, he decided to gloat this uh, last week that he was short uh, the the long end of the U.S. Treasury market. Don't, don't worry, um, he only bought puts. He only bought puts. Okay. <laughs> no. Well, well we. The asset capitalists have been buying calls. Uh, we've been selling. We've been selling sh- very, 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 very short term uh, puts just to cheapen the damn thing. We we don't like you know we don't like enriching uh, option writers with bad extrinsic. But heavens, what a week! Larry Summers and, and Bill Ackman. Um, anyway, the um, oh I, I, heavens, I must. I, I, unfortunately, people are like yeah, you know, I'm I'm bailing. Um, the um, we, we do half an hour. Um, uh, which we we share on Twitter um, for, for for everyone, um, and so it's, it's that point where I, I I may be a little bit early. Forgive me, um, but it's the heat. I'm just hot, but I'm, I'm cranking up ideas for the second half of this interview. But you're not going to see it. It's, it's uh, for the 
exclusively for the patrons. Um, but uh, but thank you for listening in. Um, think about a subscription, um, and I'll come back to you later. But for the other folk, we're gonna the screen's gonna go woozy woozy woozy, and we're gonna be on the other side. <laughs>